This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate Rewind and Rewatch, episode 25, covering Way of the Ronin 2011 from the uh, Miramar Theater in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on September 11th, 2011. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find us on their podcast feed, but you can find us on our own podcast feed as well on all the podcast platforms and applications. You can follow us on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. If you would like to support the show, you can click the link in the show notes and I'll take you to the Red Circle page where you can give a reoccurring or one-time donation. Of course, there's no obligation whatsoever, but it would all be deeply appreciated and thank you to our previous donations. I'm one of your hosts. It's your old pal, Iron Mike Spears, and I'm joined as always by Case Lowe. And Case, it seems like 2011 in Dragon Gate USA has been going on forever, but we are ending the penultimate triple shot weekend of the year in Milwaukee. You know, it's it's such a strange year of the promotion. I really thought 2011 was going to be just like, we are firing all cylinders, like maybe business is down, but high fives all around, the matches are so good. And it's just, I don't know, it's such a strange year where the first two United shows were really fun. I thought the, the finale of that weekend was one of their weaker shows. They go into a bizarre unsatisfying, albeit not bad, but unsatisfying WrestleMania weekend. There's that Northeast triple shot that we didn't care for, and now all of a sudden I'm looking at the schedule, and we've done Indianapolis, Chicago, we're going to talk about Milwaukee, and then it's the end of the year, and it's, I don't know, it's very strange. I think the beginning six shows maybe felt like they took a long time to get through, but now that we're at the back half of the year, it's like, wow, okay, we really got some momentum and on, on top of that, you know, we've been watching one Dragon USA show a week since March. We're recording this show a few days later than we typically would uh, because we typically double up on our weekly update and our Dragon USA show. Well, there was a, a Cork and Hall show this week, so we recorded later. And I had a fantasy football draft the night that we typically record these shows. So it's been like a week and a half since I have watched a Dragon Gate USA show, which is the longest gap I've had in six months now. So I feel very disoriented about this entire process. Yeah, and because of all the changes, somehow we've managed to be recording this episode on the official 90-year anniversary of Way of the Road in 2011. That rules. That rules. Which is kind of nice, you know, some, some synchronicity there. But yeah, no, it's one of those things that, like, sitting down and watching the show after the break, because I usually... That's how I spend my Sunday and Monday nights is going through the DG stuff before we record on Tuesdays. Uh, 
finding time to watch this on uh, Thursday, like starting during my lunch break, and we were like, all right, this is something. And then the kind of show it was really like, brought me down. I was like, oh, yeah, nope. We're right now into the DGUSA that almost all of us remember. <laughs> and, you know, it led off on a really weird note. But, you know, we spent the last few weeks talking about all the huge ramifications and repercussions in Japan, specifically because of the big uh, June 8th, 2011 Corkin, the official launch of Blood Warriors versus Junction 3, BB Hulk's turn, Akira Tozawa's return into Dragon Gate. But, we have some stuff that we want to talk about that was happening across the greater wrestling world to wrap up this weekend in case it was one of those things that we, we compiled all this stuff like weeks ago and then talking about this in the pre-show, remembering like all the stuff that's happening and really 2011 out of like any year that we've really done this show and like where we are six months into this program, this seems like that this was like a real big formulative moment in wrestling and at least in North American wrestling and a little bit in Japan but mostly North American wrestling that like now that we have the nine years of hindsight, it really like it, in a lot of ways, it felt like the pro wrestling that we knew in the 2010 started in 2011, like 2010 existed and was there, but it was 2011 that really kicked things into a wrestling landscape that would not be dissimilar to what the wrestling landscape is now in 2020. I, uh, at least from an in-ring perspective, I think 2011 is the best year of this past decade. You could argue 2015 is stronger. I think more companies are better. But in terms of the output that we got from Drangate, DDT in 2011 is a really good year. WWE is good that year. ROH is weird, but it's good. Evolve is there. PWG is about to begin their upswing. There's just nothing in ring was better than the year that was 2011. And a large part of that, I think, is Dragon USA, because for as flawed as some of these shows have been, there's still really good stuff on all of these shows, including this show, where I, I have a feeling I'm going to like this show a little bit more than you, but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. <laughs> but uh, it's just, yeah, it's it's a really important year, I think, more so for U.S. wrestling. The rest of the decade, I think, is a direct result of the CM Punk pipe bomb promo that we talked about a few weeks ago. I think uh, almost every big decision that was made can be traced back to that promo. In Japan, we're a year away from the New Japan boom. Still, Okada is in TNA at this point, who we're about to talk about, you know, TNA itself. Uh, But it's really good. Like I said, I like DDT 2011 a lot. There's there's good Noah stuff that year that I think has gone under the radar and that it is uh, arguably the peak of Drangate. So there's a lot of good stuff here. But, but Mike, are you ready to dive into how we got to Way of the Rhone in 2011? Yeah, let's do it. We have a note from the July 18th Wrestling Observer Newsletter in which Dave writes, Generation Me and Orlando Jordan are no longer with TNA Impact. Generation Me, who wrestled as Max and Jeremy Buck, Asked for their release over the weekend as they were unhappy with how they were being used. They had started a feud with each other way too early, and then it was abruptly dropped. They're expected to work work ROH and other indies where they can headline and have more freedom in the ring. They had been with the company 19 months. And that leads us to a month later, the August 23rd Figure Four Weekly, in which Brian writes... The Young Bucks, formerly Generation Me, ended up in a Twitter war this week after getting a WWE tryout during SummerSlam weekend. The two had been buried by RVD, who claimed they had big-timed him and never shook his hand backstage at Impact. 
Booker T, who was good friends with Van Damme, then posted on his Twitter after SummerSlam that they had done the same thing to him. Others entered the discussion, including Goldust, who said no matter what you personally thought of him, you needed to respect his knowledge of the business, and Shane Helms, who advised no matter what, shake everyone's hand so you don't have to deal with the politics. The Bucks both responded to the controversies on Twitter, and not exactly in a positive way. The word from WWE was that the company liked the two, having used them prior to their run in TNA as extras, but soured on them greatly as a result of the Twitter war. It was also said that Kevin Nash was going around and shaking hands with everyone in the locker room on Raw as a direct response to everything that happened. Mike, we've seen the (laughs) Bullet Club invade Raw. We've seen an entire promotion form arguably out of spite at times. It seems like that's how All Elite Wrestling operates. But it is here, the handshake drama of 2011, that really began the Young Bucks career as we know it. Yeah, like this is one of those things that really feels like a different generation now, especially like this. But like, if you want to like think about like how the Bucks became the Bucks, this is them getting terribly used in TNA, them breaking each other up and then not following up on the breakup whatsoever. And then just like having this and then them making like a big deal about us. Like there's like a solid three years where like the young bucks handshake thing was like the number one topic on most people's minds when they thought about the young bucks. And it's so dumb and stupid, especially nowadays where we don't shake hands at all. And it's just like, <laughs> what the, what, what were y'all like that? Like, this is like, we talked about like, I just talked about like how this is something very reminiscent of like what wrestling would be like in 2020, but I can't believe other than like Twitter outrage, I can't believe anyone would ever consider anything about someone not shaking someone's hand nowadays. No, it seems very antiquated. I think the WWE locker room has just changed so much. And by proxy, the TNA locker room has changed so much that this is uh, no longer, no longer a story, but certainly a really, really big deal at the time. Yeah, and that's, like, the insane thing because it was, like, Booker T and, like, people like Kevin Nash afterwards that now pretty much will put over the Bucks no matter what, you know? It just kind of shows you, like, how drastic of a of a world nine months takes, you know? like Or nine years takes, like, how different because I could not imagine them caring about the Bucks, like, right afterwards. But now, I mean, the, the, the Bucks are the apple of a lot of people's eyes now, and Dave Meltzer would never write that about the Bucks nowadays. Well, you want to talk about the way the wrestling world has changed uh, in nine years. We briefly go to Japan. We'll be breaking down a lot of U.S. Indies in just a minute, but we briefly go to Japan because on August 27, 2011, in Budokan Hall, the first ever New Japan, All Japan, NOAA, All Together show took place. A lot of names on this card that certainly stand out. I mean, it's the only show I can think of that had Rene Dupree, Zack Sabre Jr., and Shuji Kondo on it at the same time. But it all is great men. All, all great, great men. men. All great men. All great wrestlers. Uh, I, I will mainly focus on the last three matches. The Junak Yama and Kensuke Sasaki versus Takao Omore and Yoshihiro Takayama match. The Keiji Muto and Kenta Kabashi versus Takashi Azuka and Toru Yano match. And the main event, Goshi Ozaki, Hiroshi Tanahashi, and Suwama versus Kenzo, Shinsuke Nakamura, and Takashi Sagura. So if we remove Drangate from the equation as they did not participate in this show, that is a good reflection of Japanese wrestling nine years ago. Yeah, and it's such like a vibrant one that it's just such a 
interesting thing because like Tanahashi was a figure then but now is in such a different place you know like at that time like Kenzo Suzuki even though like how he kind of pandered out I wanted I, I just kind of like think it's just something that it's completely wild to think about that and then also like you have like Takayama in the semi-main event and it just reminds you of like how tragic of a figure he's been and it, it, it's a remarkable thing like I think it should be stated that Dragon Gate doesn't usually do these kind of things like they did do the Gaura one that we talked about a couple months back but like it was not even like I never even like at the time thought that Dragon Gate was ever going to be involved with the show like this very much was like the traditional three powers doing their thing yeah, very much so. I I'd like to see it. Uh, I I'd like to see the Drangate involvement just selfishly, but I I understand as they are largely ignored by the press and kind of off on their own island. Why that doesn't necessarily happen? Promotions off in their own island, like PWG, who we now turn to. Uh, we go back to America. Three PWG shows to talk about, and we start with the eighth anniversary show on July twenty third, twenty eleven which directly pertains to Dragon Gate USA as the opener saw Kevin Steen in a 23-minute opener defeating Pac in what is just a phenomenal match. Brian Cage Taylor defeating Brandon Gaston. Alex Shelley and Roderick Strong defeating El Generico and Ricochet. Peter Avalon defeats Ryan Taylor of New Japan USA fame. Uh, the Rocknest Monsters defeat uh, the Redacted Dynasty. A surprise appearance from Shima as he teamed with Kevin Steen to wrestle the Young Bucks in a 15-minute non-title tag team match. Claudio Castagnoli defeated Chris Hero once again to retain the PWG title, but in the main event, Kevin Steen came out, he demanded a match right then and there, and Kevin Steen defeated Claudio Castagnoli for the PWG belt. Mike, any thoughts on this show? I, I really love the opener, the Shima and Kevin Steen tag, and the ending result with Kevin Steen holding the belt high. Yeah, this was the Kevin Steen show. Uh, I remember the, the Shelly Strong tag team, like that's not a tag team that really happened too much out of the Gen X guys is kind of neat there. But yeah, no, this is like a Kevin Steen show. Everyone being super high on Brandon Gatson and he would pretty much be out of, I think he was out of PWG before 2012. Yes. Like this was, this was one of the things there. And then, I mean, yeah, Shima and Kevin Steen versus the Young Bucks. What do those four guys talk about? There's that that's just a wild thing there uh yeah so uh gatson would be out of pwg by then this year but he was like the guy for a little bit he was like the local guy for a little bit so interesting show so we're gonna quickly transition away from pwg i want to go to the east coast and evolve nine at bb king's blues club and grill we're gonna talk about evolve uh before the next pwg show for a few different reasons this show took place on July 26, 2011, so just a few days after the anniversary show, a loaded Evolve lineup, which saw Bobby Beverly and Eric Ryan go to a no contest. I don't remember why that did not have a finish, but Cage Match is telling me it didn't. Uh, the Super Smash Brothers defeated Facade and Jason Gorey. Silas Young defeats Sugar Dunkerton. Pinky Sanchez defeats Lince Dorado. The scene of Caleb Conley and Scott Reed, who we'll talk about a lot on this show, they defeated Up in Smoke of Cheech and Cloudy. There was a no contest between Bobby Fish and John Davis. 
And Mike, that match went to a no contest because Kevin Steen showed up a few days after winning the PWG title, a few weeks after denouncing Ring of Honor and saying, I am Kevin Steen, fuck Ring of Honor at Best in the World 2011. He shows up to evolve and loses a three-way match between John Davis, Bobby Fish, and himself. John Silver defeated Tony Nese. And the final two matches, the the real bulk and sort of newsworthy stuff for Evolve when they were desperate for anything in the press. Yes, there was a main event between Chuck Taylor and Johnny Gargano that was excellent. But it is the semi-main event match, Mike. Fit Finley versus Sammy Callahan that stole the show. Yeah, so this was Fit Finley's time on the Indies. It was a real fun time. And then, like, it was interesting, like, how Kevin Steen was, like, portrayed like I, during like the news updates for this, it was like Kevin Steen's here. We don't know why, but he's here. And I thought that that was a remarkable game moment. But yeah, I mean, Fit Finley. Like it feels like that Fit Finley and Sammy Callahan became a match that just was ran back as much as possible. As we'll get into this, it's it, it's remarkable though. You know, it's something that like this definitely like shows like where Evolve was at the time. Evolve will be drastically changing as much as it can on the show that will be happening talking about when we get into 2012 and a show that I badly want case rewatch for my own purposes, but interesting place that evolve is in, especially as they're getting to the point where they're trying to decide who they're, they will have a new champion within the next year and a half. Look, Mike has been trying to get me to watch evolve 10, a tribute to the arena for this show. I'm telling you now on the air, it's not happening. There, there is an Evolve show that I really want to watch for this project that I think directly pertains to Dragon Gate USA canon in a way that we both really can appreciate, but I also don't know if, if that show exists now, given the state of their tape library. So we will cross that bridge when we come to it, but Evolve 9 is the end of an era, and we'll talk about that more in a few weeks, but if you have not seen Evolve 9, and if you can get your hands on it, I would highly recommend it. Yeah, it's a, fun, it, it, it's a fun show. So with that in mind, the semi-main event show-stealing match from Evolve 9, we go back to PWG for the Battle of Los Angeles 2011 on August 20th, 2011. A one-night Battle of Los Angeles in which Willie Mack defeated Chris Hero, El Generico defeated Claudio Castagnoli, Eddie Edwards defeated Roderick Strong, and Kevin Steen defeated Fit Finley and the opening round of Bola, El Generico would go on to defeat Willie Mack, and Kevin Steen would go on to defeat Eddie Edwards in the semis. We would get a quick tag title match, uh, the Young Bucks defeating the Kings of Wrestling before the main event of the Battle of Los Angeles 2011, El Generico defeating Kevin Steen. I understand why they do three nights of Bola. I get it, but I miss especially the two-night format, but this 2011 show was a lot of fun as well. Although, I don't believe this show sold out, if that gives you any inclination into PWG's business at the time. Yeah, yeah, like, this was, like, a very abrupt thing, them going to one night, one night, eight people in this one tournament, and I don't believe it sold out, and, yeah, Dave Finley on the Indies was a very short stint, but it was fun, like, it was, like, Dave Finley going up against, like, the, the Indies people, it's something that, like, the, that would not happen nowadays, I don't think that Jerry Briscoe is going to like start doing <laughs> wrestling shots unless it's either for tradition or Tokyo carnival where he teams with the funks versus Tokyo Gurantai, which is something that I really want to happen. Yeah. Now, th- now that you say that, I'm like, Oh man, that's, I mean, I, I'm not saying it sounds good, but I'd watch it. I mean, you know, my rule, if you're not going to be good, be interesting. 
And that would be taken that to heart, Mike. I have taken that to heart. We've got <laughs> one yeah, more. No, <laughs> Go ahead. But yeah, no, this is like an interesting time because this, like, everyone talked about how PWG and the latter parts of the 2010s being like the indie all star game. In a lot of ways, this tournament was the indie all star game of its day. I mean, you have Willie Mack, who was on the come up at that time, he kind of was the breakout person in this. Hero, Steen, Generico. Claudio, Eddie Edwards, Roderick Strong, and then you have the fun intern of Dave Finley. Like, if you want to like have like a pulse check of where the independent wrestling landscape was in 2011, this was your tournament. You're exactly right, and it doesn't really restart reflect, reflecting in the business until I, I have a specific time period where I think PWG business takes off and never looks back up through the mass signing exodus of maybe 2018. But we are we are not at that point yet. They are a super indie. Uh, based on their cards, but not in terms of their attendance. And that was evident also in the final PWG show we'll talk about that happened this same weekend, uh, September 10th, 2011, the Perils of Rock and Roll Decadence, which saw Brian Cage Taylor uh, and Peter Avalon in the opener, Ryan Taylor versus Willie Mack, the Rock Nest Monsters against the Super Smash Brothers. So we're now getting SSB and PWG. Eddie Edwards versus TJ Perkins in a match that I would very much like to see in 2020, as well as El Generico versus Rocky Romero. I'd love to see that rematch as well. The Young Bucks defeated the, the Dynasty for the tag team titles. And the main event, Davey Richards falls in defeat to Kevin Steen for the PWG World title. Davey was supposed to headline the anniversary show against Claudio, but was hospitalized. Chris Hero filled in for him. Davey gets his title match here against Steen and loses in dramatic fashion. Not a super strong PWG show from this era, but it does give us a Kevin Steen-Davey Richards match. Yeah, yeah. Like, out of the shows we've we've talked about in this uh, timeline, the weakest one by far. Like, there's a lot of stuff here that, like I said, like the last show that they had the night before was like a true all-star game and a glimpse of what PWG would definitely be in a few years. This is what PWG truly was in 2011. So if you're wondering, hey, what's Davey Richards up to? Well, we are about to give you the dose of Davey Richards. And the howl the of the howl, wolf. The howl of the American wolf. Davey Richards, my favorite fucking wrestler. Uh, Ring of Honor, as we talked about a few episodes ago, were bought by Sinclair Broadcasting, and they began taping their TV shows from the Frontier Fieldhouse in Chicago Ridge, Illinois, on August 13th, 2011, these shows would start airing on September 24th, 2011, but four tapings, uh, the same format that they still use for their TV tapings nine years later, and they are still giving these four-in-one things a shot, uh, but this taping saw, uh, in the first show, the world's greatest tag team uh, defend the tag belts against the Kings of Wrestling. Show two saw Jay Lethal defeat El Generico for the world TV title as Generico was sort of cycling out of ROH. Show three, Davey Richards defeats Roderick Strong in 22 minutes to retain the ROH world title. And show four, I like the opener and the main event here. The Briscoes defeating the All Night Express in a number one contenders match. And Eddie Edwards defeating Michael Elgin. So with that in mind, we are in a transitional period for Ring of Honor, and that is, I think, ever so present on Death Before Dishonor uh, 2011, September 17th from the Manhattan Center. Mike, are you prepared for some bizarre Ring of Honor 2011 action? Oh, you know I am. Early Sinclair, late uh, Cornette, it gets wild here. 
This show screams transitional period as the dark matches Andy Rightleg Ridge defeating Grizzly Redwood. And then the show uh, properly opens with the embassy of Rhino and Tommaso Ciampa with Mia Yim, Mr. Ernesto Osiris, Prince Nana, and R.D. Evans defeating Homicide and Jay Lethal. Shelton Benjamin defeating Mike Bennett with Brutal Bob Evans. A three-way tag elimination match that saw the Bucks defeat Future Shock and the Bravado Brothers. A no contest between El Generico and Jimmy Jacobs. A singles match between two perfectly stable and normal human beings in Charlie Haas defeating Michael Elgin. A Ringmaster's Challenge match, a, a stipulation that Ring of Honor doesn't use too often, but I actually really like these matches when they occur. Uh, two out of three falls match with the first fall being pinfall only, second fall being submission only, and the third fall being a 15-minute Iron Man match, which saw Eddie Edwards defeat Roderick Strong 2-1. Uh, to one. Edwards won the second and third falls. In the main event, ROH World Tag Team title number one contendership ladder war, the All Night Express defeating the Briscoe brothers. Just seeing this main event, forgetting about the show, poor Rhett Titus coming out of this show. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was like the peak, like they built up, like actually I now vividly remember, it's like how they built up the All Night Express as they were like this joke team that became up and comers that like became serious things. And now they, they reached the top of the mountain, literally in a ladder war and Kenny King would be out of the company within like a month. I, I mean, look, I'm sure they're still promoting him as such. Kenny King, the future of Ring of Honor. You heard it in 2010 when we talked about the Davey Richards versus Kenny King match that I know was billed as that. I'm sure they were billed as the future during this match. And I'm sure in 2020, Kenny King, who I believe is in like a Los Ingobernables ripoff stable now, is probably still being billed as the future of Ring of Honor. But Mike, L- oh, let's be fair. It's it's not a Los Ingobernales ripoff. It is La Facción Ingobernale. My apologies. Do you know who are the other members of that stable, by the way? It's well, I what I I applaud Ring of Honor for finally loading up on lucha talent after everyone you know implored them to for five years. Is he in the Roosh Dragon Lee stable? It is Roosh. Dragon Lee, Kenny King, and Amy Rose. Who was Amy Rose? She was their timekeeper. Oh. You've probably seen foes of her on Instagram. <laughs> okay, I'll check the feed. Uh, well, that is that is Ring of Honor of the current day. Thank God we don't have to tackle that on this podcast. Uh, what we do have to talk about is Dragon Gate USA in 2011, Way of the Ronin. With the indies out of the way, there's really only one note from the newswires that is worth repeating, and that is the September 6th update clarification, a final build to the main event, in which Gabe says, The eyes of the world will focus on Milwaukee this Sunday for the historic main event. It is the Open the United Gate champions of Pac and Masato Yoshino versus the Open the Twin Gate champions of Shima and Ricochet in a title versus title match. So big implications on the line as we head to Milwaukee to close out this Midwest triple shot. And with that, Mike, I am ready to learn the ways of the Ronin 2011. Well, this will be the second time you've learned the ways of the Ronin. I know, and what a difference a year makes. We had Brian Danielson and Shingo Takagi on the show last year. Not so much this year. Not so much. Uh, So this, again, was on September 11th, 2011 from the Miramar Theater in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It was on iPay-Per-View. There were some issues with that as we'll get into the show itself. Case, I know you probably have the cage match entry pulled up. 
and the attendance there says 3056. Guess what the real attendance was? Uh, judging from the way this building was set up, I'm going to guess about 100 people. You are actually a little bit low here as it was announced as about 110. Oh, boy. Yep. So one note about the show beforehand. Uh, actually, two now I'm looking at it. Uh, apparently, Sal Hamawai had a hernia during this weekend. Yes, Sal, Sal was in really bad shape. I'm glad you mentioned that. I forgot to forgot to say that on the last episode, actually. Yeah, he uh, was hospitalized in Indianapolis and was not released until the 12th, so he was not able to return home at the time of Dave doing the review, which it was a post date of on September 21st, 2011, so like a full week and a half out, and then said that this was the second of the iPay-per-views. The Chicago one did the usual number, whatever that is. Nice day of note there. Well, Milwaukee didn't do much, and that was expected because it was the second straight day and they didn't even announce it as an ipad review until three days beforehand and they were going up against the first uh nfl sunday of the year embarrassing to not announce an ipad review with plenty of time ahead it's just it's it's a clown show we'll talk about it especially on the opening <laughs> parts of the card it's a total clown show so the dark match on the show lewis london defeating brett gaika uh cedric alexander cj esparza eric ryan of AIW and now GCW fame. And someone called Stitch Cypher. Don't know who Stitch Cypher is. Apparently they now go by the name of Chad Skywalker and still wrestle this day. Another Mr. Hughes uh, student with the nice nicknames of the Super Ego and the Weirdo. So that was your one pre-show match we had before we got into the show itself. You know, Chad Skywalker is a really good in-ring name. I would, I would like to see him work. I'd like to see what he can do. Maybe we can get a Skywalker contra Skywalker match. God, you are speaking my language, Mike Spears. That is why we do this podcast. Yeah, uh, the most recent match for one Chad Skywalker, formerly known as Stitch Cipher, is in a tag team of Guns and Spirits, Chad Skywalker and the Ghost, defeating BTB of Brandon Bullock and Roe Bullock in Canton, Georgia in February 2020. So still walking. So still working. This match could happen, Case. Yeah, no, I mean, wait, the next part of shooting Skywalker's excursion is certainly him doing Southern Indies. We might as well try to get it booked. I, I mean, I do have the spare room for Shun Skywalker if he wants to. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm okay with being the King Alibaba of the Southeast. I was going to call you the Eric Cannon, uh, where he housed Akira Tozawa, but King Alibaba is certainly a direction to go with that. Yeah, 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 there we go. So, we... The pay-per-view opens up with Brody walking in an alley, uh, beating someone up, harassing a woman we'd know more about later, and seeing Uha Nation stare him down as he entered the venue. Tremendous piece of character building right here. Mike, I consider myself to be a little bit of a wordsmith. You yourself, not bad with, uh, with the words either. I'm a wordsmith. I can't think of another word for words. <laughs> this segment... We cannot do justice to. I need, I, you or me, somebody needs to rip this segment and put it on Twitter when we upload this show because it is, a part of my language, the fucking craziest thing I've ever seen. Brody Lee walking down a back alley in Milwaukee, looks at a man, looks at a woman, throws the man into the dumpster, and then Uha Nation is across the street staring at all of this. How? Gabe Shirtless Uha. Shirtless Uha Nation. He booked Ring of Honor versus CZW. How is this on his product? This is, I mean, this is, 
It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable that they said Brody Lee's a monster. We need to build him up to what I'm assuming is an UHA Nation singles match. I know. Throw a guy in a dumpster and have UHA watch idly by as a woman fears for her life. I mean, that's what I think when I want to intimidate someone is I just throw someone in a in a, in a dumpster and st- and then be stared back down by someone shirtless outside the venue. I it's mean, like, that works for me. Like, the segment was bad, but it's it was just so weird. Like, that's what really gets me about it. It was just such a weird thing to do. <laughs> it is. And that is a really a good note to start this show on. That. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> of course it was bad, but above Big Bad, it was just a strange thing to produce. Like, I, I don't, I want to know the oral history of this scene. Like, whose idea was it? Who shot it? Who gave it the green light? Like, what could have been going wrong for Gabe that a cameraman went up and, hey, Gabe, we tried to do this thing. And Gabe's like, I don't care. Just put it on the DVD. Like, what could have been going wrong at the building for Gabe to not double-check this segment? Well, they did have a ring this this time in Milwaukee, so it could be the attendance. It could be the eye pay-per-view. I think I know what it is as we get into the next match, but it is remarkable. This is, like, straight out of, like, Harm- this is a Harmony current scene. Like, this is something that you would see in either Gummo or also in Spring Breakers. Just just complete, just absurdist thing that made it to a Dragon Gate officially licensed show. Okay, real quick. You know, I have a very distinct memory. The The last thing I did with my ex-girlfriend before we broke up was we watched the movie Spring Breakers. And I... It was just <laughs> bored afternoon. I'm sure it probably is what, what Dennis said. Bored afternoon, not doing much, and we're going through Netflix. I'm like, well, shit, let's watch this. Like, I've, I'm sure, like, expecting it to be, like, I thought it was going to be, like, a dumbed-down version of, like, a 21 Jump Street. I thought it was going to be no. probably closer to, like, an American Pie, actually, of, like, dumb college, like, kind of uh, horny movie. And we turned on Spring Breakers. I'm like, what is this? Like, I was not expecting any of this. And I was so fascinated by this movie that clearly in hindsight, uh, my wonderful ex, who was still a great person, but was like, what the fuck are we doing? Like, this is not, I'm not spending my life doing this. I was going, can you believe what they're doing to Selena Gomez? That movie is completely insane and not what I was expecting from it. Would it surprise you to know that Harmony Corinne is one of my favorite directors, at least of modern American filmmakers? No, you're a you're a weird guy, Mike Spears. That seems like an opinion you would have. I mean, I have threatened that I would uh, use next time if I ever did any more acting again, I would do uh, James Franco's monologue talking about all the things he has from that movie. All time, the it. it, it that suddenly everything makes sense now. Everything makes sense. It's just, it's such a, it's, you're exactly right. It's much like that segment. It's just so weird. Spring Breakers is not even bad. It's just not what I was expecting. Yeah, it, 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 it's, I mean, you get MMA preacher Jeff Jarrett. You get, uh, you, you get uh, James Franco as Riff Raff. And then you get uh, Selena Gomez and a lot of other like teen stars being a bunch of thieves. Like, like like becoming like straight uh anarchist vigilantes on a spring break it's an insane movie my it, it's definitely a movie that i if i remember like watching that with a girlfriend is just insane case. Well, <laughs> like, it was just like it was you know we're two years into this relationship it's a i i had just gotten over being very sick 
kind of early summer day, just neither of us had to work. We weren't doing anything. And I was, again, kind of expecting it to be like an American pie, like maybe just like the juvenile sexual nature of this, like maybe, you know, we'll create some spark, God forbid. And then I turn on this movie and I'm like, what, what is this? I thought it was just going to be a 90 minutes of dumb comedy. And instead it was just this movie that was just so fucked up. I, I, I mean, it, you're watching the wrong Franco brother. If it was a Dave Franco movie, we know we're gonna give Dave Franco right. Like Dave you would Franco, get that. one of the most attractive men on earth. Well, you know who he's married to. Who is Dave Franco married to? Allison Brie. Oh, that's yeah, that's solid. That's a good looking couple. Yeah, I I believe they're still together. Yes, they are still together. Yeah, they are married. Of course, as I say, the AEW Championship Committee member Allison Brie. Allison so, Brie. Every once in a while on my Instagram Explore page, like I will get. Allison Bree stan accounts that pop up and like that's fine because you know I have this battle of like well stan culture is so weird but I also run a fucking twitter dedicated to Dragon Gate like I can't attack them too much <laughs> but it does like I like Allison Bree community's great I think she's super talented uh there's a movie I can't think of the name it's her and Adam Scott that movie's really good but oh right yeah what's the sleeping with other people really good if you yeah, haven't seen it because yeah. adam scott plays a creep in that movie he plays like a predecessor to the creep. me too guys it's unreal but to run a stan account for allison brie like allison brie will pose for you know women's monthly or some magazine it's like oh we stand queen it's like really allison brie is like who you're like dedicating your life to that's a weird decision that's weird. I like her, but I don't I don't care about her when she's not directly on my television. To dedicate your life to Allison Bree seems like a weird move unless you're Dave Franco. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. No no no, you're right on that. So, should we get into the show itself? <laughs> All right, sure. Let's talk about the scene. That that'll be fun, Mike. I I mean, before we talk about the scene, we come we come to the Miramar Theater where you can't see shit. <laughs> There are pictures on my Twitter at underscore in your case. You it's it's the worst lighting and the worst hard cam I've ever seen for a show. The hard cam cuts off like if the ring is seven, it shows about seven eighths of the ring. You can't really see the full ring from the hard cam and it is dark nightclub lighting with no overheads. No, there's no bright light. It is just like Gabe found like some blues and reds and was like, well, I'll throw them under the ring. It's just, it's, it's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. The clown show a minute into way of the Ronin between Brody Lee and the lighting. I had no idea what I was in for. It's something where like, I don't know the history of the Miramar theater, but it looked like that the only like direct white light they had coming down was like the recess lighting. You have a movie theater. So people don't, like trip over their seats as they're getting into the picture. Like it's that bad of lighting. And then whatever random gels they still had on their, on their overhead lights were going off there and it made things incredibly hard to see. And this was the scene versus the Ronin team of Chuck Taylor and Rich Swan. Ronin won when Chuck Taylor hit the awful waffle on Scott Reed in 14 minutes and 15 seconds. And taking as hard as it is taking the bad production out of this, this was a decent opener. I felt like. I liked it. I, I particularly liked the Scott Reed and Rich Swan chemistry. And I think that's something that, in, you know, an alternate universe where Dragon USA has a more weekly approach, or even if Scott Reed had just continued his career, 
I think there there would have been some money and some Scott Reed versus Rich Swan action because what they saw here again very early into Scott Reed's career and you know still early into Swan's career at that those two in particular looked really good. Caleb Conley again there will come a point in the show where I am all about Caleb Conley. We are not at that point yet. Conley's still very rough around the edges. And this was a match that I thought Chuck Taylor just appeared in. No, no, absolutely. Uh, I actually like the Taylor and Swan chemistry here. They don't tag too much, but the two of them really kind of worked well together. And then, yeah, I know you also had a lot of the scene kind of gelling and seeing what kind of tag team the scene will be. Post-match, Larry Dallas was by the entrance. We can't see Larry Dallas because the production's terrible. Like, that's the one thing that does not change on the show. They have, like, a really bad entrance that's juts up against, like, a projection screen and the fans. You can barely see anyone the entire show. Doubly so with no lights. It's, I mean, we've look, we've talked about it on this show. We've talked about it for literally years now. If you put you, me, and Rich Kreich in an empty building and said put on a wrestling show between Rich's knowledge of video production, your knowledge of video production and lighting, and my work ethic— this show is going to look better than any indie on the scene right now. And for Gabe to continuously book places that look like shit, have shows that run like shit, it's just, it's inexcusable and it's upsetting because you're right. Larry Dallas is on camera. I can hear his voice, but I literally can't see Larry Dallas. It's it's one of those things that really, did, and this is a moment that really talk more about when the series is over. If I was in Kobe, Japan, and you taped stuff for the, the show that's going to be used in Japan, especially that main event, I would have looked at this and said, like, what are we doing here? Is this worth it for us anymore? Because this is just some of the – this is worse production than some of, like, the random indies I watch on IWTV. It's insane. Or it's, even just the idea of presentability compared to right. the Drangate in L.A. show, the precursor Drangate USA. Yeah, that was in a high school gym, but at least the lights were on. At least you could see what was happening. Yeah. Yeah, like I mean that's the thing. You can't see shit. For the the first three matches, you really can't see anything. And it's insane. And then after that we went to the back where Lenny Leonard and Rob Naylor were hyping up the upcoming Hulk versus Yamato no ropes match. I feel like they did a great job here. Poor Rob at the end of a triple shot his voice was going, which you know, because it's one of those things that is pretty remarkable about Lenny Leonard is someone who's been doing this for so long and has like three production days and his voice is still going strong because poor Rob Rob sounded like he, he he was about to die on commentary on the show, which I mean for him, like when he was doing commentary, this was probably like his first big triple shot. Yeah, so they confirmed the Yamada versus BB Hulk match that we'll talk about at the end of this show as for what's to come. And it's the first time they've cut to the announcer since... Uh, probably the fourth show. I mean, this was the first time Naylor has been shown on camera and they had not done this since the early days of Lenny and Chikara-san. Yeah, and I feel like this is a good idea. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. 
I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards, and yeah, you can open it, and look, it's going to be junk. You're, you, you know what I mean? Like, you know what you're probably going to get in those. Maybe you find that fun, and sometimes I do. Sometimes I like just opening up cards and saying, oh, hey, look at some random cards or whatever, but if you're really in this game to, to find value and find particular cards, it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs, and it ends up being, you know, almost nothing, you know, nothing of value. Not with Arena Club. You can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading, so you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good, and Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off. Off. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash VOWnet. Arenaclub.com slash VOWnet for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. And Rob got over the idea that at this time, no ropes match were a big deal in Dragon Gate. And the fact that it's coming to the US was a big deal. And then we have. Silas Young coming out there, and we can't really see him. Talking about Brody bullying, the woman we found out was his wife, Val Malone. And he calls out Brody Lee, and that leads to Brody Lee defeating Silas Young in 8 minutes, 56 seconds with a sit-out powerbomb. And a decent little match, you know I mean? Like, they, they gave it, like, the local spice. This very much felt like something you would do at a local indie of, this guy harassed my wife, I'm from the area, I'm going to defend her honor. Like, that, that was, like, my big takeaway out of this. Yeah, Silas did kind of have a, my wife, like a, he had a, a, a Borat moment there talking about his wife and, and how much he loved her. It, maybe it's just a flaw with the way the indies are set up, where you're exactly right. Hometown guy gets a big reaction, and he's facing the monster heel. Now, this match is coming after an opener that went 15 minutes. This match goes nine minutes, and it probably needed to go about four and a half I don't understand why Brody can't just kill this guy, especially a non-established, non-national talent like at this time, Silas Young, who this is pre-last real man. I mean, Silas Young is just the most generic indie wrestler possible at this point. I think his offense looks horrible. Silas Young kicked out of the truck stop, which I just can't. I don't understand. I don't understand the Brody Lee thing, how he's not the guy in this promotion. Silas Young kicks out of a big boot, kicks out of a truck stop. He finally gets pinned by a power bomb. All after, I mean, Brody Lee hits a tope in the first few minutes of this match that should have signaled the end of the match. It should have been wrapping up at that point. But instead, it just keeps going and going and going. And I get that you don't want to bury the hometown guy. 
But maybe don't put him in this match. Maybe just let Brody kill somebody. Because, again, in terms of raw talent, being American, and being able to talk, you're looking at Chuck Taylor, Johnny Gargano, and Brody Lee are the guys that can do that. And Brody is just undercard fodder in just the most boring possible way. And the, the booking of Brody Lee, I still think, I still think not doing Brody Lee versus John Moxley and Moxley's last weekend is indefensible. To see him recover from an injury and then to come back and still just do nothing, I really do not understand it. Because he, obviously with nine years of hindsight, as we recorded the TNT champion, I understand that it's easy to look back and go, well, Brody Lee's a star, you should have pushed him then. But even now, removing that context, 2011 Brody Lee was clearly one of the most talented guys on this roster. Yeah, and after and after like the guys that they would bring in and would become Dragon Gate proper guys, he's the biggest star and he did do Dragon Gate. He didn't stick around for too long in Dragon Gate Japan. But like you like you see how they've used him and they see like how they use people like Akira Tozawa and you're just wondering like is this Gabe's booking or is this how like being influenced by what they want to happen in Japan at the same time because it it's frustrating because he is already a complete package. Maybe it is that he knew that he was already going to be on the way out soon, but it's just insane. And he's getting pushed in Japan. That's the thing. The Dragon Gate office clearly liked this guy. He pinned Mochizuki. He's about to pin Shingo. They clearly like him. And it seems like Gabe is the one that's holding him back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And then after this match, Brody grabs a microphone and just basically wants anyone. John Davis comes out. To challenge and oh yeah they booked this finish that was the truck stop it was after Tozawa ran out and did an interference thing it's it's the picture once again on my twitter you'll see the picture of the hard cam and then you'll see a picture of what I call a distraction angle where it, it looks like when I posted on twitter I was like this looks like a black screen like Akira Tozawa is there Lenny Leonard makes note that that is Akira Tozawa you cannot see this man on the entryway it literally looks like a bl- I posted a black screen and said this is a uh, distraction angle. It, it, it It's incredibly frustrating. But So the reason why I bring that up there is that John Davis comes out to answer the challenge, and then Tozawa, you can't see him come out of, the, out of the way. And if you weren't knowing that this match was going to happen, he comes and attacks John Davis, and that sets up the next match. Like, it's just, this is a real befuddling show. Like, at this point, the show, I'm like, why are we even doing here? We've already had Brody Lee menace people. With Uha Nation standing by, you can't see anything. We had a mo- my wife thing. We've had the most popular Japanese star in this company just act as an interference person and run down someone. And now we have Akira Tozawa versus John Davis, which was a lot of fun. Akira Tozawa got the win in seven minutes and thirty seconds. That's the other thing, case. I, I we had all that, and then you have Akira Tozawa, your most popular Japanese star, I think by acclamation, only having seven minutes of a match in this show. Mike, Seven and a half it, minutes. It's exactly what I was going to say. The opener gets 15, and look, you're trying to make something out of the scene, so I'll let that go. But for John Davis versus Akira Tozawa, which is your match, John Davis, red hot. Oh, yeah. Akira Tozawa, crazy over in this match. Akira Tozawa is, I mean, on with anyone on the show, American or Japanese talent, Akira Tozawa is the most over guy on this show. Against John Davis, this is a big match. I think I I don't like the placement of this match. I wanted this match to be earlier, or I'm sorry, later on the show. This match gets seven minutes, and Silas versus Brody gets almost nine. It's completely ridiculous because this was a short match, but it was a really good match. 
I'm going to pose in a couple matches what where their time got cut, and I think if you look at the run sheet, you could see what what match I think did that. But yeah, it's insane. This was like an eight minute sprint. Tazawa won with a deadlift, not the straight jacket, but the deadlift German. I love this match. I'm fully aboard John Davis now. I recant everything negative I said about John Davis in my past. I was I was living a young and uninformed history. This match, for what it was, owned. I went three and three quarters on it. If this match got another four minutes, this would be like a four-star notebook match. It owned. Wow. Okay, so you're even higher on this than I am because I'm— I'm all about John Davis, baby. Well, I, look. Hey, Mike, welcome to the right side of history, okay? All right, I'm not going to gatekeep progression, okay? Whenever you want to cross that border and come onto my side, you are more than welcome to, okay? And I will absolve you of whatever you mistakes you've made in the past if you prove— that you want to fight the good fight. And fighting the John Davis fight, my friend, is the good fight. Because that's what I was going to say about this match. Look, Tozawa's Tozawa. But John Davis holds his own and more against this man. John Davis has offense that I don't want to say it looks calculated because that's going to that implies fake or contrived. Not it. John Davis just has great-looking offense that fits his look that fits his character, and it works perfectly. Yeah, no, like, it, John Davis at this point is, just, like, so good, and, like, with Akira Tozawa, it just was, this is a match that I hope they run back and give more time. I com- I'm completely blank on if they do, but it, it was just so much fun. Like, John Davis was, like, a fully realized thing. He established dominance in everything he did, Case. I, it's, uh, it's weird, because the, the John Davis, John Davis push, we know it's coming, it seems like, I, I don't know, I'm surprised that he's not more over on these shows, but Mike, the good news is, a year from now, we do get another John Davis versus Akira Tozawa singles match. A, a drastically different John Davis at that point, because that is that is the weekend, and we'll talk about it when we hit it, obviously. The Northeast Triple Shot of 2012, that is the, oh my god, Gabe really loves John Davis weekend, so we will have to compare and contrast, but I am glad that right now, you and I are both on the John Davis train, and this match with Akira Tozawa was just another reason to hop aboard. Absolutely. Then we had we went backstage, and we had promos hyping up the title for title main event. Spike Mohicans were first up. Ricochet cuts a good for him, with that caveat, promo talking about what this match means to him and him finally proving that he is the best high flyer in the world. Then we have Junction 3 with another better pack promo. Like, like For two guys who were not good promo guys at this time, I feel like this was a lit. I thought that this was pretty. This was strong work from both of them. And my one big takeaway: Pack had like a really funny cadence there. Like his his cadence was not what you would expect in this promo. And I felt like this was a pretty effective way of doing the last big sell before the main event. Wholeheartedly cosign your Junction Three take there. Really good promo for for his standards. Whenever I see Ricochet and Shima together in America, and Ricochet is cutting the promo. I was like, this is dumb. Just get, let Shima talk. Like, Ricochet, you're really good at what you do. This is not what you do. Let Shima speak broken English and cuss and just be more charismatic than you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he had, he had Shima just sitting there, just like snarling the entire time in his face paint. He looks like a million I'm... bucks. That's the thing. He's got the face paint on already. He looks like the coolest dude on earth, and he's just sitting there. And it's a mistake. It's it, it, Letting Ricochet talk, not a cardinal sin, but it certainly doesn't help the promotion. No, no, no. That's, that, that, that's fair. I, I agree. I fully agree with you on that. I mean, 
he was a charming face promo, and just as much as he hated Long Island, New York, I want to see him say, I hate Milwaukee too. You know, there's a lot of good stuff there with that. And then we had a tag match. This was the D period, U period, F period tag team of Eric Cannon and Sammy Callahan, defeating the United team of Air Fox and Yamato in 17 minutes and 43 seconds. Sammy Callahan locked on the stretch muffler on AR Fox, and they took an intermission here, and they fixed the lights, and things were finally watchable in this match. So, Mike, I think this is where, if we're going to have really divergent takes, I think it's going to be on this match. Star rating-wise, where do you stand on the DUF versus Yamato and AR Fox? Three and a half stars. Okay, all right. I, I Look, I went four. I love this match. Okay. Uh, I I expected you to be if you were, if we were gonna disagree that's not that's not too big of a disagreement I thought you might be no. three stars or God forbid lower but w- what's really impressive here is Ar Fox and by proxy Yamato which is impressive that Yamato did this given that he's not really in this feud but Ar Fox while doing his signature spots and still flying around the ring. Here, he just worked so much more aggressive. This really felt like the continuation of uh, a storyline of him getting his face pulverized in New York City at the second anniversary show. Fox was finally able to get his hands in the DUF, and he worked like it had been three months and he had been stewing for revenge and really wanted to get his hands on Eric Cannon and Sammy Callahan. And he did that, and the match felt really heated. And even Yamato getting involved, I mean, there's a moment where... You know, he typically does his head kick and then follows it up with another move. There's a moment where Eric Cannon's on all fours and Yamato just kicks him in the head. And it's kind of a standalone move that gets some, like, oohs and ahs from the audience because it was just a different style of Yamato and AR Fox that people, you know, I'm not used to seeing it from AR Fox. I mean, even when Fox is in programs, you kind of know what you're getting from AR Fox. This was really, really different. So you have the babyface side working just really well together. And then you look at Sammy Callahan, who, like I've talked about, was great against Akira Tozawa, was great against Masaki Mochizuki. Sammy Callahan versus Yamato is a singles match we never get, but a singles match I want to see coming out of this matchup because I thought those two had excellent chemistry. Oh, no, absolutely. Uh, That was the thing that I think, like, carried the match for me was Yamato and Sammy Callahan. I thought that they had real remarkable chemistry case. And the thing that got me about this match was this one felt like a very traditional tag match. This wasn't a sprint. This was like more Southern style beat down one baby face. And then you have Yamato coming in for the hot tag and trying to fight for his friend's honor. And I thought like that was incredibly well done here. And then there was like this one spot of Air Fox doing an ace crusher, like his over the top ace crusher to the outside. But he does it in, like, the little area in between the ring and the stage on, I think it was, he did that on Eric Cannon. And it just looked gross as hell. It just looked brutal. And, like, my one big takeaway is I know I'm going to get very tired of D period, U period, F period very quickly, Case. But right now, at this moment, this was, like, a really fun, effective match. Seeing how Yamato is kind of a a non-entity at this point. Having Yamato here doing this and like being like a strong tag team worker and having this chemistry was really remarkable here. And it just like for for like as bad of a production and just disaster DGUSA was at this time, this was like a as soon as the lights got turned on, like the show, like the the ring work backed it up. 
I I know it can't last forever. I know the DUF is going to fall off a cliff. But man, right now, from their formation, uh, Mania Weekend, the Northeast Triple Shot, they were arguably the high point of from a consistency basis, and they've been really good. This Well, Chicago was rough, but it wasn't their fault. But they played their part well, and they were great here. I mean, the Cannon and Callahan tag team works. And Sammy Callahan, who I am the first person that wants to criticize this guy when it comes to his 2020 work, Sammy Callahan in 2011 has been outstanding, and he's been really impressive against the Drangate talent specifically, which I did not expect and am great, greatly surprised and delighted by, quite honestly. Yeah, it's kind of like a surprise here. And it's something like, like given who Sammy Callahan is, who he is in 2020, and how contemptible of a person he is, he worked really well with these guys, and that's kind of remarkable, and it's something that I did not remember at all. Yeah, no, it's, it's impressive. I mean, look, my take on Callahan has always been prior to him getting signed and becoming Solomon Crow, but that, that indie run of around this time to 2013 when he signs, he's really good. He's really good, and I, I don't really even understand the argument against it. There's a reason he got signed on that early wave of indie guys making NXT what it became. Now, his time in NXT and after, really hit and miss. Really hit and miss. I've watched in person or reviewed most of his AAW matches since. It's not all for me. But when Callahan delivers, and he still can, but especially in 2011 now that we're seeing, when Callahan delivers, he is a top-tier American independent professional wrestler. No, that's a fair thing to say. And we talked about how much I was enjoying the show and everything I was enjoying the show. DUF beat down Eric Hant, or AR Fox and Yamato a little bit, and then that was pretty much bringing out Sabu and Pinky Sanchez. Then we had Sabu versus Pinky Sanchez. Sabu won in seven minutes and 46 seconds with an Arabian face buster through the table, and this is where I think Akira Tozawa and John Davis's time got cut, sadly, and this match sucked. Mike, th- look, let me be very clear. This match was not good. I, I didn't like this match. I don't want this match anywhere near the promotion. But when you think about Sabu versus Pinky Sanchez and just the weight that that holds, how how polarizing that match is on paper, I need to let you know that it's not even the worst on paper Sabu match of 2011. As I, I oh I bet I skipped over it during the opening portion of the show because the show as a whole doesn't really pertain to Dragon Gate USA. But Mike, June 26, 2011, AIW Absolution, no disqualification, falls count anywhere match, Sabu defeats Facade in 11 minutes and 46 seconds. Can you... I want to die. Can you imagine that? Yes, I can, and that makes me want to die. (laughs) To be clear, that makes me want to die. And I'm sure, and like I've said, I'm sure Fasad's a nice dude. Never heard anybody say a bad thing about him. I do not want to watch him wrestle, though. And that category uh, certainly applies to Sabu. I don't think he's that nice of a guy, and I really don't no. want to watch him wrestle. I was I was conducting some research this week of when was the last good Sabu match, because we haven't hit it with this promotion yet. He's 0 for 2. And I started looking at his cage match, and there's some stuff here and there of like 2007 2010 Garrett Kidney claims that there's a good Sabu versus RVD match from TNA in 2010 I don't believe that for a second I think Sabu completely falls off a cliff 
after he leaves WWE. Because I maintain that his run in WWE is maybe not the most effective use of him, but he is good in his role. And then everything else after that, I mean, you look, his his last WWE cage match recommendation is from April of 2007. There is a AAA match from November of 2007 that features Crazy Boy and Joe Leiter teaming against Extreme Tiger and Halloween and Sabu and Teddy Hart. Would love to know how that match was constructed. It uh, just blows me away. And then he's got an ICW match in 2015 and an Impact match from last year that I watched and was not a fan of. So we are really dealing with a decade plus of Sabu going from uh, revolutionizing wrestling to charming individual to actively bad. Yeah, no. And I have a story that I know I've teased a little bit about Mania Week in 2012 about what I did instead of watching a Sabu match. So we'll get into it when we get into that as well. So I, I will say only, I will say just to put it on record, star and three quarters. Star and three quarters as well. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about, Mike Spears. <laughs> Alright, so post match DUF continuing attack. Fox makes a save. DUF a layout both. AR Fox gets taped into the ropes. Sammy grabs a microphone and talks about crushing him with his bare hands since he was crushing since uh he wasn't able to crush him with a uh, a keg and a placard. And then Geeks came out to beat them up. It took 10 on 3 in the crowd chain, 10 on 3. This thing took about 10 minutes. This was a misfire with the DUF. This segment sucked. AR Fox was attacked. Yamato wasn't there to save him. John Davis wasn't there to save him. It was just Geeks from the locker room. I don't understand it. I didn't like this. It took too long. A, a real misfire here. Oh, it just was incredibly long. And then the Geeks, like, it just looked terrible and it took forever. And it just was not a good time. No, nor was the match that followed, quite honestly. Yeah, we have a four-way freestyle with Hassad, Flip Kendrick, Sugar Donkey, and Uha Nation. Uha Nation got the win in the freestyle with a triple powerbomb that was kind of botched on Sugar Dunkington in 8 minutes and 39 seconds. It kind of sucked. This match was Two a and mess. A quarter. I mean, this was, yeah. this was bad. And it comes after Uha stealing the show in Indianapolis after a far too complicated and less effective version of that against Brody Lee in Chicago, but still, still, Uha got over to some extent. And then you have this match, which, look, you got Flip Kendrick and Uha Nation in there. I think that should have just been the singles match, because this match starts with Facade and Sugar D doing grappling. And I was like, that is a bold choice, my friend. I, I would not... I it was would, a bad time. would not have done that. Uha and Flip Kendrick, that should have been the match. Uha should have thrown this guy 911 Spike Dudley style and just thrown him into the crowd, quite honestly. If we're going to do you know, full-on ECW tribute spots, Uha should have launched this person into the first three rows, and then he should have you know, beat him by count-out or whatever because the, the triple powerbomb was messed up. Everyone's chemistry was off. This was not a good scramble. Two stars for me. Two and a quarter just because I thought Uha, even though everyone else in this match was terrible i thought uha looked like a star and the crowd received him as a star and i probably would have been a little bit higher if the finish didn't have uh sugar dunkington visibly like not going up for one power bomb so it is it is a rough match and it's just one of those things that like it should have been like a three-on-one match or a gauntlet where uha just power bombed through people around and that was it instead we had to sit through facade and trigger dunkington uh, it was not a good time. No, no, not fun at all. Yeah. 
it was not a good time at all. Then we had an Ultimate Gate video. So, I mean, they're about the same time as last show. And then we had Johnny Gargano versus Naruki Doi and what I thought was one of the two best matches of the night. Gargano won with a Gargano escape in 17 minutes and 20 seconds. I felt like that this was like the major Johnny Gargano is now the guy match. Like more so than anything that happened in the Blood Warriors feud, more so than him tapping out Shima and uh, Austin Aries in the same night. This was Johnny Gargano becoming the guy. I still look at the Shima and Aries submissions as a bit of a bigger moment, but it was nice to see, especially after we lost to Tozawa the night before, Gargano getting a big singles win against an established talent that, as I quickly kind of rifle through uh, my mental notes here, I believe Doi has been on every set of shows with the exception of maybe the Northeast double shot at the end of 2010. So Doi is an established talent at this point. And by the way, Mike, I was thinking watching this match, we've only got one more Naruki Doi match in Dragon Gate USA history. Uh, it's coming up on the end That's of Doi. Uh, it's something to monitor and, and something we will, especially as we hit 2011 of these guys just disappearing, just no longer working the promotion. And, and Doi is one of them. We've got one match of his left. This was back and forth great wrestling. Really simple stuff. Gargano looked good. Doi looked good. Gargano was able to get a big singles win with a submission in the middle of the ring. I went three and three quarters on it. I went four and a quarter. This really, like, hearing that this is the tail end of Naruki Doi breaks my heart a little bit. It is. He has been the one guy that I feel like, other than Kirtozao, has taken to working in the United States like efficient, like, just perfect, like efficient water, just completely was all for it. And the story about this, like, Gargano had his number early and caught him. And then Naruki Doi was able to fight back and get back in control. But then it was Johnny Gargano, like rising to the occasion, getting out of two muscular bomb teases, hitting the Hertz donut, going straight into the Gargano skate. I felt like that was almost a chef kiss moment. Like this really felt like, okay, Gabe, you did some really dumb things earlier, but right now you have set up a guy on the way that I know what's going to happen in the future. And it, you could see very deliberately that Gabe knew what he was doing here, which is something that before this on the show, I was wondering if Gabe knew what he was doing. Yeah, no, the 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 moment here and the the main event itself was like, okay, that's right, Dragon Gate USA is fine. Like it's it's not it's not perfect, but it, it is what it is, and what it is, it works. But the show certainly start, starts off on a bad note, and Gargano versus Doi is kind of the realization of what the promotion had become and, and what the promotion should have been. A very good match between a, uh, an American guy and a Japanese guy, and the American guy went over, and it was all, fun was had by all. Yeah, no, absolutely. Post-match, uh, more production issues as the microphone started to fail as Johnny Gargano declared himself the number one contender after tapping out Doi. Uh, Johnny then fights off the bad mic and says he wants a title match at BB Kings in November. And then he also wants Chuck Taylor and Rich Swan to go for the tag belts on the same night so that Ronan can stand tall as all the champions there. That brings out Chuck Taylor. Chuck brings up the four way in his win and they're laying him to set up a match. He then drops like two elbow drops straight onto the microphone. He was not having it. And he said, Oh, I can just yell Matt loud. I can project. It's okay. Generally funny moment from Chuck, but he said like, I can make my match. You're choosing that night. I'll take the title match the night before that, and you and Swan can go have a title match. And this kind of had the two go face-to-face, brings out Rich Swan to try to play Peacemaker. Then Chuck Taylor said, 
you're wearing a Junction 3 t-shirt. What are you, Ronan and Junction 3? He's like, I'm both. I'm both. And that was like a really interesting post-match segment that's building on the stuff earlier on this weekend of both Chuck Taylor and Johnny Gargano going for the title. And Johnny Gargano believes he has a strong claim to be the number one contender because he just tapped out in Rookie Doi. Chuck Taylor says, I can win. I can name my match. I won that four-way, so I'm going before you. And I thought that that was a really effective piece of work. Like this, pretty much like after the facade match, everything here is like what I want out of DGUSA. Like they built up the upcoming weekend where Ronan are both getting the Freedom Gate shots very well here. I was not aware prior to this rewatch that this is how they got to Yamato versus Taylor and the subsequent match at BB King's. I love this angle. I think it's really interesting the way they've pitted Gargano and Taylor against one another and also pitted Gargano and Taylor against Swan, given his Junction 3 relationship. This is the kind of stuff that, given... Well, it, it, all, it all comes... You know, it's cyclical. It, it all ties to, together. The bad production hurts angles like this because this is, to an extent, intricate storytelling and not being able to have working microphones... Not being able to still, the lights are improved, but they're not much better. Not being able to produce timely video packages. This is the stuff that hurt this promotion. Because this is a really good angle that gets lost to history. Because in the moment, it was lost on the viewers. Because nobody could hear or see anything. And they didn't have video packages really explaining it all that well. And it's frustrating because I really like the way they've approached the Taylor Gargano Swan dissension. Yeah, no, they've, across, like, the three weeks with stuff they've been having out in front of the crowd, if I was out in front of the crowd, I'd know exactly what was going on. But you're absolutely right. There should have been more YouTube stuff. This should have been, like, the focus point of Ronan's been together now for almost a year, but they have. But it seems like they're now coming apart at the seams. Rich Swan, it looks like he's more ingratiating himself with the Japanese roster, which was against the purpose of Ronan. And both Chuck Taylor and Johnny Gargano are gunning for the top title. And they claim that the, that the other person, that they deserve it more than the other person. Like, that's a great story. And they tell it really effectively that in ring. But as soon as you get outside of these shows, you don't know anything about it. And that's really frustrating. Yeah, it's it's just, it all will come back to bite them. Every little mistake that they've made up to this point, it is going to become insurmountable for them to overcome it. And it's just the little stuff like this that, that gets lost. It's why production matters so much. And there's no excuse for these shows to look as bad as they do and sound as bad as they do. It is really frustrating two years into the promotion, given what they started with, to see them go this downhill. Yeah, no, I'm totally with you on that. And I think that that really now, this is like, it's not even the, I always make my, my plane analogy about it, is the plane going down or going are going off now the, the plane is having a lot of engine starting to pick up engine problems that they should be taking care of the entire time like that's what's happening it's like little things that you pass over you don't put care into and ultimately that leads one of the reasons that they like the promotion fails like these things these little things that could have very easily i mean twitter was a thing youtube was a thing we talked about the youtube creative comments video why are you putting that up and not the stuff here on your shows of uh, building up this feud and and i believe I believe there is a pretty lengthy Chuck Taylor video package that will come in the next triple shot. And I, and I will double check when we get to those shows, especially the Philly show. I, I can picture the promo and I believe it was uploaded to YouTube, which is great. But you're looking at a promotion 
that runs three times every three months this year. How there's not some sort of weekly implementation, some sort of, other than, you know, Gabe's writing, which is explaining the rules of the stable shootout, (laughs) other than that sort of weekly implementation, it just seems like stuff is being left, you know, up in the air and out in the open, and it's not it, not as effective as it could be. And I understand, you know, digital marketing has changed a lot in nine years. I also understand that we don't, you know, I'm not scouring the Twitter archives of Johnny Gargano to see how he was promoting every match. So maybe a little bit of a it, well, it's is probably lost wiped there. as well. Yeah, well, especially it's in the case of Chuck wiped. Taylor, uh, it's definitely yeah. wiped. But it's just. There's a bigger picture. You shouldn't have to rely on tweets to do your promotion. There should be a bigger picture effort that is not being capitalized on here. And when you have production woes like this, it takes away from the effectiveness of the storytelling that you're trying to portray. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that leads us into the main event. This was the title for title match. This is not unification. It's just title for title where the Spike Mohicans of Shima and Ricochet the Open the Twin Gate t- champions put the titles on the line against the Junction 3. Uh, Open the United Gate champions with Masato Yoshino and Pac. Went 24 minutes and 9 seconds with the Spike Mohicans becoming the double tag champs as you had Shima clock Yoshino with a Meteora. And a very strong main event and one of the few matches I feel like in recent memory that Indeed USA had a big match feel. I, I love this. I, I really really loved this match and it started off on the on the wrong foot. I was kind of dreading this at the start. Now now Mike, I'm confused because Gabe said in his notes at times it was a non-unification match, but this is the last time that Yoshino and Pac defend the belts. I I believe this ended up becoming a unification match or at least maybe an it, I maybe it was an open the United Gate title match. And the twin gate belts weren't on the line, but Shima and Ricochet win the belts here, correct? Yes, and uh, the thing is that Lenny in the match announcement called it title for title, and the graphic said title for title. Okay, like they, so so again, bad messaging. Yeah, bad very promotion. confusing because I bad you were saying that, and I, I checked something right before we started recording that said it was non-unification, but I was like, wait a minute, they they held the belts, and this is all. It all goes into the story of Ricochet versus Pac. I know Shima and Ricochet win the belts here, and they do. In a match that really upset me when it first got going, because Pac and Ricochet are doing a sequence in the ring that ends with Ricochet doing kind of that lion salt to his feet, you know, jumping, you know, moonsaulting off the middle rope, and you can see the middle rope has no structure to it, and Ricochet like shakes his knees and then is able to do a dive off of sheer athleticism. But I, I'm watching this and I'm thinking like, oh my god, if it's not the ceiling. It's the ring. They're going to be totally handicapped by forces beyond their control, and it's going to really, really suck. But they figured it out. They figured it out in a way that that blew my mind to a point that this is one of my favorite matches in the promotions history because you have you have a few things going here. You've got Pac and Ricochet. They're a weekend-long feud. It's all terrific. They look great. You've got Yoshino and Shima, who just, I just liked their chemistry together. They just worked with one sure. another well. What what stood out to me here, Ricochet is not only hanging with Yoshino, Ricochet is wrestling like he's in Yoshino's league. Like, Ricochet is carrying himself like he is on the same level 
as Masato Yoshino, and I just really, really liked seeing that confidence from him, especially given an hour earlier when he cuts a really shaky promo, just to see him put it all together in the ring is still so exciting. And then you have these authentic Drangate spots. I mean, Mike, what did you think about the ref bump and the Brody Lee run-in and then the subsequent Blood Warriors and Junction 3 train spots? Oh, I loved it. I thought that this is like this was a time that they incorporated uh, Blood Warriors and Junction 3 into Dragon Gate USA in a way that they really have not done so far due to timing. And I feel like this came across as incredibly authentic. It, like This felt like a show, and I think they did, that you could take this match and put it on episode of Infinity, and it would not look out of place whatsoever. Completely agree. You know, Brody Lee comes in, he hits a big boot on Yoshino, and then Yoshino gets hit with the Schwine, and Yoshino kicks out. And had that been the finish, that would have been a horrible finish, it would have left the show on a sour note. Yoshino kicks out, he keeps going, the the ending sequence between Shima and Yoshino astounding is astounding out of this stuff. world. I mean, Shima takes a lightning spiral, which I just don't. I don't remember him taking that move often. I mean, Shima's always had a bad neck, and that is a move where you were dropped directly on your neck. Shima takes a lightning spiral. Uh, Pac hits the British Airways on Shima at one point. Ricochet breaks up the pin, and then the finish of this match. And I have it in my notes in all caps. Middle rope Schwine and Yoshino kicks out and then a, a dash in another line and it says Meteor crushes him. Fuck you, Spike Mohicans win. It is such an emphatic finish. I was so on board with this match by the end of it off of the raw talent of these four men to overcome a bad ring with bad lighting, with bad production. Mike, I still went four and three quarters with this match. I was so in love with this by the end of the bout. You know, it's something where, like, this felt the big match. This this would fit in on a big five show, absolutely, without, like, any change of pace whatsoever. They did it well. That closing stretch where it wasn't just the the second rope schwine. Masato Yoshino was teasing a top rope lightning spiral onto Shima's neck, which was, like, one of those holy shit moments. And then... One, a great all-time Meteora, like, Yoshino absolutely took it like a champ, and there's, like, this one moment that there was, like, a Spanish fly that was done, and I think it was, uh, Pac, it was, no, it was Ricochet onto Pack, where they went almost two-thirds of the way out of the, across the ring. Like, this is just insane stuff. I think this is by acclamation, unless something crazy happens over the last weekend, the best match of DGUSA's 2011. It's just purely outstanding. I was... A little bit more down, you know, it's four and a half stars, so we're within the margin of error here. Yeah, it's a ma- match of the year contender. Yeah, and it's something that, like, this is why we do the series, is matches like this. Like, this should be like a Dragon Gate canon match. Like, that's the frustrating thing about this promotion, is, like, you had Ricochet, who's almost a year to the day of being in the Dragon system. You have Pac, who came up through the system. And then you have Masato Yoshino and Chima, at times the two biggest stars of the promotion's history in this match, and it was magic. And, you know, it was 24 minutes, incorporated all the great tropes of Dragon System, and just was a fantastic way. And I love how then they cut straight to black. They had them celebrate with the with the belts. There was no thank you for coming promo. It was just them standing tall. The Spike Mohicans are double champions, and I felt like that was a perfect way to end out the show. Mike, off the top of your head, which match do you like better? This main event or the main event of the Philly show, which was Yoshino and Pac versus Doi and Ricochet? I like this match more. I think I did too, and I really like that Philly match. But yeah, unless 
unless I'm forgetting something, and I don't think I am, to this point, drank at USA's 2011 match of the year. Yeah, no, I'm right now looking through this notes, and it tells you how long of a year that DGUSA has had that I'm now going back to their first ever show in, uh, at BB Kings. But yeah, like it's it's that, and then the CK1 versus Yoshino and Pac match from uh, the night before that in, Phil- in New York City. Those are probably my three top matches of the year. That, so new, that new York show, I, that I, it's like... It's, I'm not going to call it underrated because we watched it and rated the show, but that is like a <laughs> sneaky good show that just gets lost due to time and lack of importance. But the the United Gate tournament matches on that show rule. I loved Callahan versus Tozawa. The Moxley versus Jigsaw squash is fun. That New York show was really, really good and one that has stuck with me as this series has gone on. Yeah, yeah, and also makes you remember when Homicide was briefly a member of World One. That's what that's right. when Julia Smokes just runs out of the back and attacks John Moxley. Maybe <laughs> maybe that show wasn't as good as I remember because that angle happened. Just wild, wild time, and that ends away of the Ronin twenty eleven. It is a very up and down show in an up and down year and an up and down promotion with a lot of production issues and some truly bizarre things. But at the end of the day. We have a match like the title for title, Spike Mohicans versus Yoshino and Pac. And if you have a show like that, at the very least, that match is worth going out of your way for. It's it's pretty much canon in DGUSA in my mind. Well, Mike, with that in mind, I'll preview what we'll be talking about next week. Drangit USA Revolt from Revere, Massachusetts, the Wonderland Ballroom on 11-11-11, November 11th. 2011, the final triple shot of the year. I have not seen this show before. I have very fond memories of the Philly show that comes after and the BB King show that concludes the year. I have not seen this show before. A show that will feature the scene versus Eric Cannon and Pinky Sanchez of the DUF, John Davis versus Sammy Callahan, a rare Masato Yoshino versus Akira Tozawa singles match. Chuck Taylor and Johnny Gargano versus Brody Lee and Shima. That should be a lot of fun. Uh, maybe not so much fun. BJ Whitmer versus Vinny Marseglia. Don't know why Wait. that needs to be included. Are you talking about the Horror King Vincent? <laughs> is it? Is that? I, I, I am. Vinny Marseglia is. Yeah, he's the ring of. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's right. He is the Horror King Vincent. I completely forgot. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. That match somehow it sounds worse now. Uh, after that atrocity, we do get a six-way elimination fray match. AR Fox, Pac, Ricochet, Rich Swan, Uha Nation, and Sabu. Now, I've heard this match is very good. I look forward to watching it. It might be the last good Sabu match there is. And then main event, as established, non-title, no DQ, no ropes match, BB Hulk versus Yamato. I mean, BB Hulk's a different boy now. And we will be talking all about, you know, heel BB Hulk as a thing. The last time we saw him in this promotion, he was still dancing. He still had the silver and gold World 1 gear. He's a very different man than the man we saw in January. Yeah, yeah. This this is going to be an interesting show to watch. Like, this is a show that I do remember that uh, six that six way fray. I do remember that match very distinctly. And yeah, it'll be an interesting way as we start the last weekend of DGUSA's 2011, their last triple shot. And then, to be quite honest, things really accelerate towards the end of the promotion. <laughs> I'm not looking at the rest of this. Like, we're getting into like the last 20 shows. We it is something that this promotion 
speeds up exponentially over the next two years. But case that does it for this episode of Rewind and Rewatch. We're, this was the, uh, I don't know what anniversary the 25th is, but this was our 25th episode. And we've been getting responses that people have enjoyed the series. So thank you all. If we don't do this, I still firmly believe that no one else will go back and have a record of this. We'll see how I feel about after we wrap this up and I look back at about the uh, 70 hours worth of audio we've done in this case. Like, like, uh, like I'll have some other thoughts then, but for now, it's, it's been a blast, and we got to see one of the most truly bizarre things I think Gabe Sapolsky ever did on the showcase. Yeah, I, I love this series. I'm having so much fun with it. Uh, I'm sure once we finish this, there will be uh, another rewatch series that we do. Probably not including Evolve 10. That's off limits, but I, I am looking forward to this. It has been so much fun so far. And like I said, I haven't seen this Revere show, but I love the Philly show and I love the BB King show. So I'm pumped to end 2011 on hopefully a high note. And that is all I've got. That is Way of the Ronin 2011, and that is what's to come. Absolutely. And you could follow the show at Open Voicegate. You could follow Case at underscore in your case you can follow me at fujiheya but until next time when we're going to be in revere massachusetts that's it for open the voice gate take care everyone